0: This is Anthony Arena and you're listening to In the Arena. Stay- A few years ago, while I was sitting at a sales kickoff meeting, I noticed that there were a lot of people who were very happy with the content, and I was thinking about all the people who don't get a sales kickoff. So at that time, I started kickoff.com and I've done three of those with my friends Mark Hunter, Mike Weinberg, and Jim Blunt over the last couple of years, and every year it gets bigger and bigger. Having done that, I recognized that a lot of salespeople don't get an opportunity to go to conferences at all. And on Hover one day, looking at domain names, I picked up outboundconference.com. I shared that with Jeb and Mike and Mark, and we put together a program. So on April 13th, 2017, at the Intercontinental in Buckhead in Atlanta, Georgia, you will be invited to the very first Outbound Conference. But to go there right now, you need to go to outboundconference.com forward slash get hyphen invited to get on the invitation list. The tickets are going to be at a price that anyone who wants to be there will be able to afford, and there's a special VIP access pass that you can buy for $599 that's going to give you... The first couple rows of seating, it's going to give you an autographed copy of each of our books and a private book signing. It's going to give you a private reception and a private hour and a half mastermind lunch with the four of us. So if that appeals to you, reach out to me at thesalesblog.com, go to the contact page and go to outboundconference.com forward slash get hyphen invited and get on the invitation list because we want to see you in Atlanta for the Outbound Conference where we will be talking about prospecting pipelines, and productivity. See you there. Jeff Shore is a friend of mine. He is a sales trainer, a sales consultant, and a keynote speaker, and we've known each other for a couple years. We had a conversation about some things that we see going on in the world of sales, and I like the conversation so much. I invited Jeff in the arena to talk about some of the observations we've made about reading and about thinking deeply about what we do and about some of the choices that allows us to make so this is my friend Jeff Shore in the arena Jeff how are you good to see you my friend
1: uh, always a pleasure thank you
0: thanks for having me Anthony well wait till we get started before you decide if it's okay Fair enough fair so enough. I, I saw the picture of you on your Skype profile yeah and I just want to know how long ago that was taken because it's mm-hmm. uh, uh, definitely, a couple it, years have passed.
1: Did, did I have hair? Is that what you're implying? It was darker. Okay, hold on a second. Hold on a second. I just a note to my marketing director right here. It just says, Change the guy. Uh, got it. Funny. Got it. Yeah,
0: I was just teasing you. I don't have like a single gray hair on my head. So,
1: <laughs> but it's funny. I, I, you know, I've got a team of people that are good at what they do, and I'm, I'm like the world's anti-control freak. I don't want to know. Right. And so p- things pop up and I'm like, hey, we look pretty good right there. And then you see things like your Skype picture and go, all right, people, come on, get on it.
0: I'm the same way. I'm like macro, macro, not micro. Yeah. I-, I want yeah. macro. Right. You have to focus on big outcomes. Right, uh, right. Yeah, right. Well, even my team knows that
1: if they're sending me an email, once you get past the fifth bullet point, I stopped reading. <laughs> yeah. You totally lost <laughs> me. Micro,
0: you're micro yeah. now. That's too, too <laughs> deep. Too many yeah. bullet points in. You and I had an interesting conversation. Well, I thought it was interesting. You you have your own opinion about that, but the, uh, you know what's what's interesting to me is that a podcast like this and some of the others that our peers do, it's just really easy to talk about selling all the time, right? And and I write a blog post every day, and I write a newsletter every Sunday. I'm doing YouTube videos, but after people read me for a while, they realize I don't really write about sales. I'm writing about human effectiveness and psychology and other things that I think are more important values. That stuff to me is more interesting. I want to talk to you about what's interesting to you. And I want to talk about some things that people maybe aren't aware of when it yeah. comes to effectiveness in any endeavor. So mm-hmm. outside of sales, we can leave that one aside as much as is possible for the two of us. But let's start with something like Nicholas Nasib Tlaib and who, who wrote, Well, he's famous for The Black Swan, but in my opinion, Anti-Fragile was a better book. Tell me why you read that. I think you commented to me like, well, I'm not like a super intellectual or anything. And then you pull out Tlaib and Kahneman right away. And I'm like, well, yes, you are. (laughs) I mean, you're you're reading pretty heavy content.
1: Uh, Why? You know, it's really the same reason I am very selective about the fiction that I'm going to read. I don't read... Yeah, I used to read Grisham until it all sounded the same, or, 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 but Michael Connolly and all it's, listen, it's entertaining and all of that, but I can figure it out, right? I will only read fiction that takes me to a place that I can't go on my own. So if I'm reading, you know, Bernard Cornwell, historical fiction about the Peninsular Wars in, you know, the, the 1600s, okay, now I'm going to a place that I could never get any other way. And I think I approach what people, think about that's the really interesting stuff to ask, can I get there on my own? So like you, Anthony, you know, I've read the first 20 pages of I don't know how many business books where I went, OK, I get it. This was an essay that was puffed up into 60,000 words. And uh, I'm essentially done because I already know how this story ends. So for me, I, I want to read stuff from people who are going to surprise me, from people who are going to get me to a place that I could not get to on my own.
0: And why do you think that is? Are you the kind of person who's introspective enough to know, like, it's because I still feel like I don't know enough? Or yeah. it, or is it because I like the variety so much and learning new things and growing is a strong driver for you? What is it for
1: you? Yeah, I think it's just blatant insecurity. I mean, I'm I'm secure in my insecurity, and I've come to the point where I think everybody is insecure in their own way. Some just mask it better than others, but uh, I recognize how much I still have learned I think one of the turning points for me is that, you know, I come from a sales background and you study sales and study sales and study sales. And then when do you wake up and you go, wow, there's not a lot new under the sun out there. But when right. you flip that on its head and you go, how do people think, how do people make decisions? Well, now you're limitless because that field continues to evolve. Now we're learning more and more about brand chemistry and how it's going to affect decision making. And ultimately, Hey, if you figure out the way that somebody is going to make a decision, then you can reverse engineer the way you want to talk to them in the first place. you you're designing it that way. So for me, I want to read something or study something that's gonna going to get me to that place because again, I, I simply do not feel comfortable trying to think that I can get there on my own.
0: Yeah, and you know what? It's interesting. If somebody let's stick with Talib for a minute. I mean, he, yeah. he spends decades as a quant. And he figures out that the best bet that you can make is the micro bet. You place a relatively large amount of money on the very long-term bet that over time, something bad is going to happen. Mm -hmm. that's it, right? The black swan. It can't Mm -hmm. happen. It's impossible to happen. But it happens given a long enough time. And I don't know if he's worth billions, but I'm uh, guessing nothing I've read has disclosed the amount of money he made on a bet that the Mm -hmm. financial markets are going to collapse. But he saw it, and he's like, they're going to see something that they can't believe will happen, and he placed a bet on there. What do you read from Tlaib? What have you read, and what has it done for you?
1: Yeah. You know, I am fascinated by the concept of comfort addictions and how comfort addictions manifest themselves in different ways. And I think when you look at the establishment, the bureaucracy, or what Tlaib calls the, the fragilista I think that there's this constant CYA approach, right? How do I constantly make sure that I'm not getting into trouble with this? And that's why I love the fact that he's gonna go in, he's gonna he's gonna call it as he calls it, he's gonna name names, he's gonna call people up, he's gonna do what he needs to do. And all of that speaks to if you are a slave to your own desire for comfort. Then you're never gonna get out there and see a whole different world and a whole other opportunities because you're just always afraid that you know you're gonna end up with mud on your face or looking bad in the wrong psychiatric journal or whatever it's going to be. And he's like, screw it, life's bigger than that. So I kind of one of my mottos that I carry around with me is the idea that life is a buffet and I want to die full. And the only way you could do that is to get outside your comfort zone and try and figure out. What are those things that you've always wanted to know? What are those things that you always wanted to do? And so when I read Talib, it takes me, it challenges me to say there's a different way to look at life. And if I'm willing to really care a lot less about what people think, then I'll start doing really bizarre things. Like, as an example, for me, I'm 55. At 52, I didn't know how to ice skate. Now I'm the captain of my hockey team. And I'm like a little kid out there on Sunday nights. It's the most enjoyable endeavor that I've taken up for a long time. A lot of people are looking and say it's pretty unconventional and perhaps stupid to learn how to skate and play hockey at 52. And I'm looking at it and saying, well, why wasn't I doing it? Because eh, I was a comfort addict. Because it sounded like hard work. So for me, if that's where he has challenged me more than anything else is to deal with my own comfort addictions.
0: Yeah, the book *Antifragile* I think is probably one of the two or three most important books I've ever read, specifically yeah. for the idea that you can set your life up so that the adversity and the challenges actually make you stronger yeah and so that you can prepare yourself that any kind of disruption is actually something that you benefit from yeah. rather and and some of that's a mindset i mean it's a framing of how do you look at things but yeah. I, I think that book is i like it better than i like the black swan yeah, uh, by a pretty wide margin and i think it's because it's so action oriented and We do have the Fragilistas, and I do also like that he explains that a lot of the people that are making decisions and that you're reading and that are experts have no skin in the game, Yeah, so they can say anything, but they don't do what they say, so you're seeing that play out now in American society, and he's, I think, on the front end because he does name names. (laughs) He's
1: he's not afraid of ending up on the wrong side of an argument. He's clearly not trying
0: to make friends, is he?
1: No, yeah, yeah, yeah. And along the lines, then he makes friends with the people who get it. And I think that that's a really cool discussion. Yeah, I, to me, the black swan was really, it was kind of apocalyptic and, and a little bit depressing. But when you get to anti-fragile, it's like, no, 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 no. Th- That, well, I guess that which does not kill us makes us stronger comes to mind or to paraphrase Solomon from you know 2700 years ago. There are lessons that we can learn in times of prosperity that we can't learn in times of adversity. And we have to go through those things. And they're beautiful if we allow them to be beautiful.
0: Yeah. What about Kahneman? So Mm -hmm. tell me why you read Kahneman and what you took from thinking fast and slow. And then I want you to weave that into what you got from Michael Lewis's book, because I haven't read that yet. Yeah, yeah. uh, I want a little bit of a preview.
1: Right. I'm a junkie. I'm a Kahneman junkie. I I actually wrote to him when I was researching, not this last book, but the book before that, and said, hey, can I interview you for the book? And he wrote back and I got the polite decline. I'm really busy. Well, you're, you know, highly prized, Nobel Prize winner. No no question, you're really busy. But I just have to tell you that seeing pop up in my inbox an email from Daniel Kahneman was like, even a rejection email was a, a total thrill for me. So I really just love the fact that, I mean, once you get past the early part of the book, which is really all about dual process theory, which has been, I don't think he needed to invent dual process theory, but he certainly needs to set that in place to kind of get a sense of how the brain works. Then to me, it was the application of it and how blind we really are. And the whole concept that what you see is all there is makes it very easy for me to make sense of the world and the problem is there's nothing easy about the world so even when you get into his ideas of how we evaluate decisions and we look at it and say hey i made this decision and it turned out good therefore it was a good decision not quite that simple and so i love the fact that he challenges me to be able to really think past the obvious because there's nothing obvious on this planet everything is complex our brains want to make it really simple, but everything is complex. And when you get down into the past, the obvious, that's where the cool stuff is. That's when the light bulbs start going off. And yeah, I found myself writing in the margin in just about every page.
0: Can you point to a takeaway where you're doing something different having read that?
1: Oh, boy. Yeah, I mean, I could. I think I could point to several. But if I think of one that comes to the top of my mind, it probably has to look at My tendency, my personal tendency towards the confirmation bias and the idea that you you um, have that. Oh, believe it or not, I absolutely found myself aggressively looking for points of view that would confirm my own. And so during the last election, for example, I was in a hotel room. Actually, I was in Columbus, Ohio on the night of an election night. And I'm looking at it and I found myself alternating between Fox News and MSNBC. And you don't get any further apart than Fox News and MSN. But The one reason I wanted to see that is because I wanted to see what the people on the extreme end of the argument were saying about it as it was unfolding. And it's just absolutely fascinating. So for me, it, it broadens what I'm going to read. It broadens what I'm going to watch. It broadens who I'm going to talk to. And that's been a, a key takeaway for me. Me
0: too. And I think one of the things that Condiment sort of challenges you to do in the same way that I think Talib does, and those two guys are friends. You know that, Right.
2: I do know that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 so they've done you, you, it's,
1: Michael Lewis writes about that relationship. Yeah, yeah
0: it's yeah. it's an interesting relationship. But it's to actually seek out things that you disagree with. Yeah. And then spend time with the things that are absolutely what you oppose. Yeah. and And to look at it without the confirmation bias to decide mm-hmm. what's the truth or the value that you find in that. Mm-hmm. If you're big enough to do that and to say, I'm going to take a look at it and find out where the value and the truth is because well we'll use the election even though it was it's an ugly thing to talk about. Half of the people half of the people felt exactly the opposite as the other half of the people. I mean, just about 50-50, as close Mm -hmm. as you can get. And everybody at that time, and you can go back and look at everybody, you can still look at their Facebook pages. All they're doing is going out and finding things that support their belief and then sharing it. Right now they're just complaining mostly. But that's what we do. We seek out what what confirms us. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting and how we grow is to go out and find something that's absolutely making us uncomfortable. And Mm -hmm. you look at it and you say, there's no way I hate this. And Mm -hmm. when you look at it, there's a lot of growth opportunity there, Well, there has been for me anyway. I can say that.
1: Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's interesting because when I read Michael Lewis's book, the undoing project about the relationship between Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky, one of the things that was fascinating is that when these two guys got together That was basically their entire approach was to try to shoot holes in their own thoughts. So this is what I think is happening. Let's just pound away. Let's pound away. And they had a great time doing that. And they'd spend an entire day writing a sentence, but it'd be a pretty powerful sentence by the time they were done. But they were the ones who weren't going to wait until they could publish something in a scientific journal and wait for other psychologists or behavioral economists, whoever it is, to come along and shoot it down. They said, let's do that first. And that's what caused them to really, I mean, it's one of the fascinating things in that book was the amount of time that they spent studying regret and anticipated regret as it relates to decision making. And I'm eating it up and I'm writing in the margins and I'm like, there is curriculum here and I'm going to talk about this till I'm blue in the face. Until one day they looked at me and they said, you yeah, maybe that's not as big a deal as we thought. And then they just scuttled six months of work and went on to the next thought. And I'm like, well, now what do I do? And he later went back and said that anticipated regret is actually a very, very powerful stimuli to the way that we're going to not make decisions. And then the status quo bias picks in and all of that. But I love the idea that those guys were absolute contrarians, even to their own ideas. And I don't think that that marks the standard operating procedure for most people today, especially in the political world.
0: Yeah, but in the in the scientific world, new science is always better than old science. You know, mm-hmm. and, and the more we learn, the more we recognize the mistakes that we made. And the one thing that makes science, I think, so powerful, behavioral economics or psychology is just the willingness to abandon. Leeches aren't great medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, they were. I mean, yeah. they, were, they were what we had. And, right. and now you're like, well, we would never use leeches now, although I guess yeah. there is a, a, still an application for leeches with blood clotting and, mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Uh, and dealing with stuff like that. But you know, new science tends to get better. So the, the willingness to throw away six months worth of work to say it's not the most important thing and mm-hmm. move on, we don't do that in very many other endeavors as human yeah. beings. Science has, seems to be the one that right. we're willing to let go of past beliefs to and shed them and bring on new ones.
1: Gee, try trying to think of some application to the business world where I live every day, because that never happens in the sales arena, right? I mean, we're always <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, we're pretty pretty <laughs> deeply entrenched. What else have you read that has shaped your thinking outside of sales?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, by way, if we stay on the psychology side of things for just a moment. I was reading about, I was going through this cycle of just trying to understand just cognitive errors and where we typically make mistakes and some of the heuristics that don't serve us particularly well because they, they make us feel good in the moment, but they're not good in the long run. And one of the cognitive errors that I just sort of stumbled upon, and this was actually, it was probably a couple of years ago, but I came across this because Daniel Kahneman was talking about it. it wasn't actually, I don't think he ever addressed it in Thinking Fast and Slow but I think it was in a YouTube video. I was watching. Don't remember. Anyway, he was saying we were talking about the imposter syndrome, this irrational fear that people are going to figure out that we basically just make crap up for a living and you know that the emperor is wearing no clothes. And I remember because I was sitting on an airplane at the time reading this article and I just like held the article in front of my face and started to shrink down like, oh, no, they they found out, you know, they're on to me. And then I called a friend when I got off the plane. I was talking to him and he said, oh, I thought it was just me. And as it turns out, everybody deals with that imposter syndrome by the time we're done. And I think that goes back to the insecurity that we were talking about earlier, right? The idea that they were all insecure in our own way. Where I've come around on that is a phenomenal read called The Element by Sir Ken Robinson, which was much more directed towards the school system and the way that we approach children and how we determine whether whether they are smart. I have to air quote that. But or whether they're smart. And the most profound message from that book that actually applied to me was not the question of how smart are you, but the question of how are you smart? And so, you know, we take kids and we say, pass this test. And if you pass this test with flying colors, then we'll deem you smart. We'll put you on a fast track. We'll put you in this special program. And there you go. And then everybody else, you can't pass this test. Therefore, you're not smart and good luck at McDonald's. Right. And the question here is not how smart are you? It's how are you smart? And I wanted I had to come full circle on that between understanding the imposter syndrome and the irrational fear that people are going to find out that I'm making stuff up. And I think the key word is irrational. And then really looking through how am I smart? And then just doing that talent stacking thing where I say, I'm not the best at this. I'm not the best at this. I'm not the best at this. But When I take my expertise or my strengths in these areas and I stack them together, that's what makes me effective. So even though, as I mentioned to you earlier, I really don't consider myself to be an intellectual, I think I'm certainly smart enough to be able to hang with intellectuals and be able to extract out of that lessons that I can then just share with other people who may not want to read the book, but there's something that I might be able to have that that impacts their life. My guess is that you're connecting with me on that conversation.
0: So you're what you're saying is that you're not an intellectual, but you're kind of an imposter hanging out with the in the intellectual cocktail party.
1: <laughs> I'm on the lower ranks of the intellectual ladder, but I can easily jump over to the quote non-intellectual ladder. I'm 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 bilingual in that way. How about I'm
0: that? I'm very, very comfortable in the non-intellectual. Okay. All right, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, that's I think the imposter syndrome is interesting because if you go to any C-level executive and you say, I mean, if you're just alone and you say something like, how long before you think they find you out? And mm-hmm. they'll, they'll look at you and say, I'm surprised they haven't found out already. I have no idea what I'm doing. you know, yeah. And, and it, it takes a while. And then they get comfortable in it, in the not yeah. knowing, and they get real curious, and yeah. um, they start asking a lot more questions of other people, recognizing, right. like, I, I don't have to know everything. And mm-hmm. you don't have to know everything. Yeah. So a lot of psychology, behavioral economics, you like that?
1: Yeah, but uh, but I would also go, like, if I go back to high school and think, what did I read in high school that made a difference for me? It was probably based in the same things about the exploration of my own brain and my own psyche. But I remember in high school, there were three books that really stood up. Somebody gave me a book of Zig Ziglar. See You at the Top which was the first time I'd ever been exposed to motivational psychology. And, you know, I mean, I just feasted on that book. Now I look at it today and I go, it's a little on the silly side. But, hey, when you're 16, 17, I mean, that book's powerful. That's Uh, zig. I mean, yeah. It's zig. It's zig. Yeah, exactly. I read The Catcher in the Rye, which when I was in high school was like scandalous that that was in our library, The Catcher in the Rye. You just didn't read that stuff. I mean, it had the F word in it. But it really got me thinking. There's a whole world outside of that tight little white suburban enclave where I grew up. There was a whole world that I did not begin to understand. And that really challenged me to start thinking, what don't I know about the world? You know, you look at it after a while and you just see the world from your little comfortable little corner. And then I read, interestingly enough, I don't know why I would hate this book today, but I read Irwin Shaw's Rich Man, Poor Man, which was just a, you know, a junky beach novel, but it lit my entrepreneurial fire. And when I was in high school, I knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. I knew it. And I, I was just looking at the character in this book. I don't remember the character's name now. It was a long time ago. But I just remembered, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to work for somebody. I'm going to go rule the world. And later became familiar with the familiarities of being an entrepreneur and how, how, how many intricacies and difficulties it is. But I knew in, out, of high, you know, out of high school that's what I was going to do.
0: How long have you had this business?
1: I've been, I started short consulting 18 years ago, just three days ago. It, it hit our 18th anniversary.
0: Happy yeah. anniversary. How many employees? 10,
1: Ten. and a couple of uh, part-timers as well.
0: Sure. Yeah. And then yeah. some outsource people too.
1: Yeah, you yeah. bet. We're, we love to outsource and it's, that's, what's great about 2017 or whenever you're, you're you're listening to this it is just so easy to be able to just offload anything now there. i don't have a huge problem with reaching out to somebody who is in pakistan through elance or whatever it's called now upwork or whatever the, the you know, to get some side work done i don't have any problem with that at all i'm, I'm not guilty about sending that job offshore
0: no i mean there's so many talented people yeah. and now you have total access to them and they have access to work because yeah. they're not salespeople and they can't sure. go get
1: their own work. Absolutely. What's
0: What's on your reading stack right now?
1: Persuasion. I've had the book for a couple of months and I've not, I just hasn't made it to the top of the stack. So persuasion is definitely there. I think influenced Cialdini's first book, which is now, it's like, it's like thir- it's going to be what 30 years old. I mean, that, that book's been around for I, quite a while. I,
0: I spoke with him twice last year. Yeah. I spoke with him once where we both did a keynote, a short keynote and then we both spoke in south africa together and we both were leaving on the same flight back to the united states so we took the train to the airport together and then we had about we spent about 4 or 5 hours together at the yeah. airport hanging out and talking mm-hmm. and so can you well you've read the book so it's just getting to sit down and talk to Childini, and he was so gracious answering every question but influence is a super smart book i haven't read yeah. persuasion yet either i'll be interested to hear what you say but people say it's even better
1: that's what I have heard as well. That's uh, hard hard to imagine, but that's what I have heard as well. But it was interesting. I, I just did an Amazon search on this. Influence, that book's 30 years old. It ranks number 325, uh, at least a couple of days ago, of all books. And it's still way, way up there in the the top of the list. It's just an, an absolute classic. So I'm um, looking forward to that. Yeah.
0: And if you're an Internet marketer, that's like the book that you have on top of the Bible, right? I mean, that, that, that <laughs> book is their Bible. Like they'll yeah. pull every lever in Cialdini's book. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Rust, so I've got that a- authority, so on.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I've got that on the queue. I also have, I'm trying to remember the title, it's the it's really the seminal book on the Civil War, The Pride and the Glory. I don't know what it's called. It's around here somewhere. I'll have to figure it out. I am a sort of a Revolutionary War buff. I love the Revolutionary War. Me too. I, I confess a tremendous amount of ignorance around the Civil War. So that's just one to try and fill that little hole. So I think those are the next two books in my queue. What about you?
0: There's a couple Grant books that are are worth reading for a view of the Civil War, because the interesting thing that turned me on to Grant was Ender's Game by Orson Mm. Scott Card. And the beginning of that book in the intro, he discloses where he got the idea for the concept of what a leader does. And he was reading Bruce Canton's three-volume biography called Army of the Potomac, and what he realized is that there were four generals that ran the Union side of the war for Lincoln, And Mm -hmm. the first three failed miserably. And then you give Grant the same army, same colonel, same captain, same horses, same terrain, same enemy. Everything's the same. But it was Grant's decision to exercise the army as his will. He was going to use the army to impose his will on the enemy. That turned the tide of the war very quickly. And three other people were unwilling to use the army that way. Mm-hmm. And and this is Orson Scott Card's take on that in Ender's Game, which is an interesting take if you haven't read it. Much better than the movie. It's, the book is better than the movie. But that's that, to me, is the interesting thing about the Civil War, is that the leadership, what a difference the leadership made on both sides of the the war. Interesting. So, and I'm a yeah. Revolutionary War guy, too. I like that better, yeah. and I spent a lot of time there. So
1: Yeah, love
0: it. Right now, I'm reading Krishnamurti, who was sort of a spiritual guy, and I'm rereading... Ken Wilber, Sex Ecology, Spirituality, second hmm. run through that book from American philosopher, who's probably the most cited American philosopher in academia. Yeah. And it's about 900 pages and probably 350 are notes. And the notes are really a separate book altogether. <laughs> but it's, it's a, another view. If you want to understand human beings and human evolution and, mm-hmm. and why we do what we do and where we get stuck, it's the most meticulous and well-crafted framework I've ever seen.
1: I'm kind of curious. I know it's your, your show, but you don't mind. We're just chatting. <laughs> exactly. Right. What spurred your interest in philosophy? Because I think it's a, there's a lot of people who are sort of at least mildly interested in psychology. Most people don't even really think understand what philosophy is. But what spurred your interest in philosophy?
0: I think that you need a certain set of rules for understanding how to operate in a world that has increasingly accelerating disruption after increasing accelerating disruption. And Mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing because I wrote something the other day about how tough it is to work now. And the reason it's hard to work now is because think about this. Your parents or your grandparents, they knew exactly what to do every day. They knew exactly what they had to do. And there was a, a place where you started and a place where you stopped. Yeah, And now for most of us, because the industrial age ended in our lifetime, mm-hmm. so we've, we've been alive when that ended. And it's not like there's a one day, there's a transition. And you can go back and say, okay, so Time Magazine says there's a personal computer. That might have mm-hmm. been the beginning of the end where this started to happen. You could go to 2007 and say this phone that Steve Jobs gave us, the smartphone, you know, is another waypoint or another milestone as this shift. But now you have to figure out what your work even is. Mm-hmm. You don't even know what it is. And you live in a world where the decisions that you would have made at one time would be exactly the wrong thing to do now. Mm-hmm. You know? And so like with my children, I want them to be entrepreneurial because that's actually the safer bet than going yeah. to work for a big company, all of whom yeah. are losing market share right now because mm-hmm. of this disruption and they were businesses built for a time where things were stable. And I think we've lost the stability and we probably will for a long time. So mm-hmm. philosophy has always appealed to me because there's a structure for thinking about how do I exist and succeed in this life that I have? So what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And so I, I started with Stoics and I like that line. So then I started studying the Zen Buddhist, You know, mm-hmm. basically who will tell you what you got from Kahneman, that we really don't know anything and we don't understand anything at all and there really is no duality. It's all one thing. When you can figure that out, then you have a very different view on things. Right. Um and then I picked up Wilbur from somebody I was connected to on Facebook who was just talking about integral theory. And that that's his framework. And I started reading it and I eventually forced myself on Ken and, you know, sold his people so I could come and sit with him. And now he and I are good friends and I've had a lot of time. To read his work and then go sit down, which is the best thing to do is to go sit down with somebody and then have them explain all your misconceptions to you, you know, Mm -hmm. which is what he's been able to do for me is to help me understand what I don't understand about how we end up growing psychologically Mm -hmm. and what that development looks like. And on my podcast here, Ken's on, Ken's been on and I followed him up with Bob Keegan out of Harvard, who's a developmental psychologist who wrote a terrific book called Immunity to Change. Mm-hmm. which is a very clever framework for helping people and organizations change. But I think it's all about the psychological development. And there mm-hmm. seems to be some philosophical things that you can figure out to help you along the way, which mm-hmm. is why I think stoicism is so important right now. I think that's why, you know, Ryan Holiday, who's also been on, you know, has got such a, a hot hand with the stoicism mm-hmm. thing because it's a useful frame.
1: mm mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because I there's no question about it, and I don't apologize for it. I take my Christian worldview into the way that I live my life, but I also recognize that the confirmation bias that we were talking about earlier says that I'm going to reach out and find people who are going to support what that is. And and sometimes that's difficult to try. When when I read an atheist point of view, my first reaction is to go, oh, you poor, poor person, right? You, you just don't get it, you know? But I think as I have I don't know if mature is the right word, but as I, I have
0: spent his Sunday nights playing ice hockey, so I don't know. Either,
1: but okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's definitely in question, but I, I have become far less dogmatic and far more appreciative as I get older. Things that I used to hold as absolutes in even my own philosophies. I look at it and I go, there's at least room there, even though I haven't, don't feel like I have backed off my, the foundational Christian belief I do believe it's a big world, and I was probably a little bit too much piss and vinegar when I was, when I was younger. Can I, really? say, that? I say that? I don't know if I can say that.
0: You just that. did. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it's interesting. If you read Ken Wilber and you read a lot of people who are spiritual, some of the Zen Buddhists, and yeah. if you start to recognize that all of these people are friends mm-hmm. yeah. because basically what Jesus found was the truth, Mm -hmm. and what buddha found was the truth and Mm -hmm. a lot of people believe it's all the same truth and that Mm -hmm. we're already connected to god and that's what it is so Mm -hmm. and you know there's the atheists who i think is almost a religion now too too, yeah yeah, so it's a different kind of religion but it is all of us going out and confirming our biases for a long Mm -hmm. time and and not recognizing that other people we probably have far more in common Mm -hmm. than we have different Even among religions, they're still much more the same than different.
1: But, but this—I think this goes back to what we were talking about earlier, and that desire for comfort. You know, it's uncomfortable to really challenge what you deeply believe. Maybe what you were raised with. Now, it wasn't raised in that environment, but what you were raised with, what your community, your society—it's uncomfortable to go against that. And then you'll find that you're going to talk to people who, whether they're on your side or the opposite side are so, this is the way it is, and there's no room for even discussion on it, that, you know, you don't want to be involved in that conversation either. So I I think it's You obviously
0: knew my grandmother, (laughs) who who walked to Catholic Church every day before she went to work her entire life. So yeah, there was really only one truth. And if if you didn't have it, she was going to help you understand why you were wrong. Right,
1: yeah, yeah. But it, sometimes, though, it's just difficult to find people who are will, even willing to have open conversations. And I, I look at it and I go, and this is one that I'm going to give very strong credit to, to the atheist. The question is, at the end of the day, what do you do with God? I think this is the the most important question I have to believe, the most important question we can ask. What do we do with God? At least the atheist has found a way to, if only having to actively do so, discard the concept and say, I- I've got it figured out. There is no God. At least they thought it through. What concerns me is that are, there are a lot of people out there that spend more time figuring out what their Netflix queue is than on um, the, the true meaning of life. So,
0: Which is a much more difficult question to answer still through, yes. through all of the reading and all the help. But yeah. thanks. Uh, thank you for being here. I'm going to point people to your website in the show notes. Yeah. And I appreciate you coming on and having a conversation outside of sales.
2: Yeah, Uh, because I
0: I think it's interesting and it gives people a different view of who you are, because Mm -hmm. you're not just a guy who knows sales, you know, other things. And I'll just say this last word about it, but everything that we talked about, you're figuring out a way to make it practical application when you think about selling. And Mm -hmm. I think that that's the important thing for me. Probably the reason that I read and that I study so much is I like practical application Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. I want to find out what can I read that I can apply That will help other people get better results than they get now. And the books that you read are the same. We share a lot of the same reading habits and and choices. But to me, it's better than a Gladwell, for instance, because I don't know what to do with this work. Mm -hmm. Um, I have a tough time. Like, I read blank. And Mm -hmm. so am I supposed to just trust my intuition blindly and go with it? Or, you know, it's it's not prescriptive enough that you understand it. But you read anti-fragile and you get a pretty good idea. Like, look, in your health. You need to figure Mm -hmm. out how to be anti-fragile in your financial Mm -hmm. life. You need to be anti-fragile in your business. And you start to think, okay, what actions do I take? I think it's better to walk away with something that you can actually do.
1: Yeah. In defense of Gladwell, it's a great story, but I completely concur what you do with that story is you just simply can't retell it and think that everybody's going to know this is what I do next. I'm totally with you on that.
0: Yeah, that's a best writer. I mean, no Mm -hmm. doubt about it. He's the best. I love it. But for me, it's application. Well, thank you for being here.
1: Cool. Thanks for having me. My pleasure, Anthony.
0: That was my friend, Jeff Shore, and you can find him at jeffshore.com. I'm Anthony Anorino. You can find me at thesalesblog.com. You can also find me at youtube.com forward slash anorino. When you go there, do sign up for the newsletter, the best work I produce every week. It hits your inbox on Sunday, so you can hit the ground running Monday morning. And listen, if you like this podcast, go out and give us a review on iTunes. It helps us find other people who care about this kind of content and who are going to benefit from what we do. And if you think it deserves it, give us five stars. We appreciate that. I'm Anthony Annarino, and I will see you next time in the arena. Hey, Brandon, it's Anthony Anarino, and you are a big sponsor for us at the Virtual Sales Kickoff 17, which we just finished, and now the Outbound Conference, and I want to pitch Cirrus Insight. So who better to do that than you? And I want to just ask a couple questions. This conference is called Prospecting, Pipeline, and Productivity, and I think that Cirrus Insight, it just sits right in the center of that. I mean, it's almost like this is built for you. So tell me, why do people use Cirrus Insight?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And Our philosophy from the time we started five years ago is sales is hard enough. It's a lot of work. It's a hustle. That's why it's so much fun. And so we want to provide tools that really meet salespeople where they work and help them to get their job done faster and easier. So what we did is built a tool, Serious Insight, that sits right inside Gmail, right inside Outlook, which is where those of us in sales spend so much of our day because that's where we communicate with clients. And so we make it really easy from there to Track emails, create and merge email templates, set follow up reminders so that no deals fall through the cracks, and also seamlessly update Salesforce, which so many of us use for customer relationship management. So we're really supposed to be, you know, a sidekick that's always there showing you your customer information so that you can develop those relationships that end up leading to sales.
0: And so if I were to do this in my way, if I would say it would sound something like this, you know how you hate logging all that stuff in salesforce.com and you hate doing that data entry? You don't have to do it anymore.
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah. that's largely where we've come from. You know, when we, when we talk to salespeople and say, hey, you know how you have to switch back and forth between Gmail and Outlook 100, 200 times a day? We will make it so that you can stay in your inbox and get work done faster and you don't have to keep copying and pasting data back and forth.
0: I, I love that because I think that, you know, you and I just did a podcast where we talked about words spoken divided by revenue. So it's uh, revenue by word spoken. Nobody gets paid for data entry, but everybody gets penalized for not taking care of the most important asset that any of us have. And that's the relationships and all that's going into your CRM. So in my view, your CRM is really about maintaining the relationships that you have, your most important asset. And if it was the one thing you could take with you when you leave a company, it would be those relationships. This is about the maintenance and care of those relationships. So thank you so much for being our sponsor here. And I'll look forward to seeing you at the Outbound Conference on April 13th. And thanks so much for being our sponsor.
2: It's going to be a fantastic conference. So hopefully as many of your listeners as possible can join us because we love meeting folks in person. So hopefully we'll see you in Atlanta.